what I want to do today is I will build on what we were doing yesterday, and I want to start talking a little bit here now about uh, the particular history that leads us to both contemporary philosophy of science, but also to this thing called neopositivism, which sort of passes for unqualified science within a lot of the Anglophone social science world. So a little roadmap of how we're going to do this. I mentioned yesterday that in order to make sense of some of these things, we have to start out with a little canvassing of the whole European Enlightenment. So we're going to do a quick whirlwind tour of some of the basic high points of uh, old dead white guys thinking about knowledge, uh, which is kind of what happened in the European Enlightenment. It was mostly old white guys. Uh, and so talking a little bit about sort of how the, the understanding of knowledge that they had sort of became the framework that a lot of subsequent work would uh, play around within. And I want to talk a little bit about this key distinction between verification and falsification that becomes really important to some of these debates, particularly in the early to mid part of the 20th century, which then leads us to this thing called neopositivism, which is if you had a course in graduate school which was simply about quote unquote the scientific method, in a social science class about the scientific method, it was probably about neopositivism because that's generally what happens in terms of the way that the, the, way the vocabulary works uh, nowadays. Obviously, if I believed that neopositivism was quote unquote the scientific method, this would be a very different set of lectures and it would actually stop today and you wouldn't have to come for the next three days. Um, but this is one of the various kinds of options that shows up on the menu. But I think it's important for us to understand what that option looks like in part because all of the other approaches we're going to talk about for the rest of the week key off of various criticisms of this approach. So it's important for us to get this one straight before we move on from there. Now, any kind of reflection on how in knowledge and the problem of knowledge was addressed in the European Enlightenment philosophical tradition has to start with our friend René Descartes. Um, not only because he thought, therefore, he was, but also because Descartes, somewhat against his own uh, intention, ended up setting up a problem that he couldn't solve, and the fact that he couldn't solve the problem sets the agenda for everybody else trying to solve it in the European Enlightenment tradition for the next 350 years. So Descartes, like most of the other people that we're going to talk about here for the, uh, the next little while, are is a person who did not succeed. But it is a glorious failure, and that glorious failure is important because it gives us this legacy that then people keep wrestling with. So. For those of you that haven't read Descartes recently, it's useful to remember that Descartes' problem, or the way Descartes frames the problem of knowledge, is in this very explicit uh, context of thinking about religion and thinking about religious knowledge and scientific knowledge, because Descartes' puzzle that he starts off his, his meditations on first philosophy with is we know the truth because we have revelation, because we have scripture, because we have obviously the correct religion. Uh, and the problem is how do we make the truth of that religion known to other people who do not necessarily share our religious inheritance? We cannot simply quote our scripture at them because it is not their scripture. 
And so we can't rely on revelation to demonstrate the validity of the things that we already know to be true. So we need some other way to demonstrate the validity of those things. Now, there's a huge debate in Descartes' scholarship about whether Descartes actually meant that or whether Descartes was just saying that so that he could get past the censors at the time because you couldn't publish anything about religion and truth unless you made all kinds of obeisance to existing Christian doctrine. Um, so the debate on, on that goes on and on. It's not necessary for our purposes to solve that particular debate. The point, though, is that what Descartes is trying to do is to look for an independent basis on which to place knowledge. Not scriptural revelation, but something else, some other way of grounding what it means to know things. So perhaps in part because what he's trying to do is ground not just empirical truth, but kind of religious truth, he says what you need to do is you need to search for some kind of absolutely certain basis on which to place knowledge. So in order to find an alternative way of grounding things, we would have to find a completely immovable uh, groundwork, a foundation on which we would be able to build, something that would, in effect, be the functional equivalent of scriptural revelation, so just as secure as scripture for a believer, but not based on divine revelation, based on something else. So Descartes, in his famous thought experiment, and there's some debate in Descartes' scholarship about whether he actually does this particular experiment or whether he just kind of thinks about it, he goes and locks himself in a tower, and then he starts doubting things, and he starts sort of, there's a whole bit, there's a, there's a, a whole section of the, of the meditations where he like has this whole thing about a bar of wax that he keeps trying to melt and trying to figure out what the essence of the bar of wax is. Um, so, which, and he's fine-grained descriptions of how the wax is melting, and like, is the wax still the wax if it no longer has a it's waxy form and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so Descartes is looking for this absolutely certain grounding. And his procedure, which is important for especially what comes next uh, in, in terms of this philosophical tradition, his procedure is to say, I find the thing that is absolutely certain by doubting everything. And eventually, if I doubt everything, I will get down to the bottom and I will find something at the bottom that I cannot doubt. And once I get down to that point, then I've got certainty, and then I should be able to build up everything from that basis, right? So it's a, this is the procedure that Descartes argues that we should be following, radical doubt, which then leads us back to certainty. So he's locked in his tower. He doubts the existence of the outside world outside of the tower because all he can see is the stuff inside the tower. He then starts doubting that his senses are giving him accurate information because, gosh, we all know that we can be mistaken about things that we perceive. So clearly, perception can't actually be the undoubtable thing. And if I look at a, he talks about optical illusions. You have a glass of water and you put a knife in the glass of water and it looks like it's broken because of the way that the light is distorted. And you go, oh, well, clearly my senses are lying to me. So those obviously can't be things that I, that I can regard as absolutely certain. And he gets down to the bottom and you end up with a very famous phrase. He finds the thing that he can't doubt, right? Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So, Congratulations, he's found the absolute point of certainty, his own existence. The problem with having found that he exists and that he can absolutely not doubt that he exists, because of course if he doubts that he exists, he's the one doing the doubting, so surprise, he still exists. Um, the problem is that only gives him his own existence and doesn't actually allow him to then move back the way he had originally projected from that absolutely certain basis to knowledge of other things. 
And he says, well, yes, because I appear to have these sensory perceptions that tell me things like there are objects in the world. But, you know, maybe I'm being deceived by that. Maybe there's some powerful demonic force that is distorting my senses and leading me to believe that I see these things, but actually not. So how do I get myself out of this? What Descartes needs to do, and this is critical for the next several hundred years of people trying to work this through, is that Descartes argues, it's a convoluted ontological argument, um, but in brief, Descartes argues, because I am a limited being and I have an idea of an unlimited perfect being, I could not have come up with that idea unless there was an unlimited perfect being that could have put that idea in my head. And therefore, God must exist, and therefore, God must be good. And if God is good, then that means there can't actually be a demonic force that allows my senses to be deluded because God would be more powerful than that force and would therefore stop the demon from misleading me. And therefore, I can trust the evidence of my senses. It takes about two chapters of the meditations for him to run through this particular line of reasoning, um, which only makes sense in terms of like medieval scholastic categories about ontology. So it's a very, very weird proof. But the point is that Descartes requires the existence of God in order to make his procedure work. From the undoubtable fact of my own existence, I only get back to being able to trust the evidence of my senses if I can demonstrate that God exists so that my senses don't ultimately delude me. So that's kind of the, the cycle that Descartes runs through. Now, this seems to be a perfectly reasonable proof as long as you already believe in the existence of a divine being that has all perfections. So if you already are a believer and you already believe in God, sure, this argument works. But of course, Descartes' whole project was to try to find a basis that was different than scriptural revelation for knowledge. And he ultimately can't do it because the only people who would assent to his proof are people who are already believers in the same kind of God that is revealed through the scriptural tradition that Descartes is a part of. So he can't actually get out of this particular hole. So what you end up with, and this is what uh, the philosopher Richard Bernstein uh, many years later would refer to as Cartesian anxiety, you end up with this very strange situation where the first part of Descartes' argument seems to be pretty unshakable individuals exist. The rest of Descartes' argument, and therefore we have good knowledge of the world because God makes sure that we don't get deluded, that part gets doubtful. So what are we left with? What we're left with is a whole bunch of autonomous, knowing individuals with no confidence in anything that they know. This becomes Cartesian anxiety, uh, because if you start out with this idea that your job as an individual knower is just to know things about the outside world, but you can't close the gap between yourself and the outside world, this obviously produces a small amount of trepidation, because who knows, the things that you're absolutely certain about could in fact be delusions. And if they're delusions, oh no, maybe I don't actually know anything, right? So that's the kind of heritage that Descartes ends up bequeathing, even though he tries to get around this, he ends up forming and framing the problem in a way that people are going to basically are, live within that frame for the next couple of hundred years of European philosophical reflections on the problem of knowledge. So the first kind of attempt to resolve this problem of Cartesian anxiety and yes, I'm being anachronistic by referring to it as Cartesian anxiety because that term doesn't come around for a couple hundred years, but I think the term makes sense of what this procedure is actually like. So this is John Locke, 
And Locke is uh, one of the authors of one of the first kinds of solution. Not the only one, right? Thomas Hobbes is actually floating around in here as well. And so, as we'll see in a second, is someone like David Hume. But there is a kind of British empiricist tradition that tries to resolve this problem of Cartesian anxiety. And the way they try to resolve the problem of Cartesian anxiety is they say, well, Descartes moved a little too quickly to doubt the evidence of his senses. That really, the thing we should use is the founding groundwork of knowledge is not just the fact of our own existence, but in fact, the sense perceptions that we have. That knowledge is grounded on our ability to see and perceive the world. So Locke's rather strong formulation of this in his essay concerning human understanding, which is his two-volume work of epistemology, um, which in many ways is a much tighter and much more consistent argument than the thing he's probably best known for in the political and social sciences, which is the second treatise of government, which is actually kind of a logical mess if you actually try to integrate and figure out what's going on in the second treatise. But uh, the, that's a whole separate lecture. But uh, Locke's uh, argument in the essay concerning human understanding starts from the idea that human beings are blank slates. And every idea that we have in our heads is put there by perception and then by logical deduction from our perceptions. So it's an idea, you, as I said, you find this in Hobbes, you find this in other British empiricists. Locke kind of pulls it out to its furthest extent in a lot of ways. Um, but the idea here then is that you cannot look for something that is mentally undoubtable. Instead, you have to look for original sense perceptions and you have to then deduce things from original sense perceptions. So a lot of the work that Locke does in the essay concerning human understanding is that he takes supposedly complex, subtle ideas and breaks them down to basic sense perceptions. So he takes a notion like justice and tries to take it apart and, and connect justice back to basic perceptions of balance. And he says, okay, so that's kind of what we're talking about here, that these are really, they go back down to these original sense uh, ways in which we're kind of plugged into the world. So that is the way that they try to solve this Cartesian anxiety problem. You reduce complex notions down to the bottom. And I'm going to keep using this spatial metaphor of reducing down to the bottom because, as you'll see, there's another version of this, which is don't reduce to the bottom but move up to the top, which is a different way of trying to resolve the Cartesian anxiety. But for the empiricist, it's all about going back down to the sort of original sense perception now, one of the nice things about this way of thinking about knowledge is it helped to make sense out of the successes of empirical science and experimental science, the physical sciences, that were going on around the same time. Remember, this Locke is sort of a contemporary of Isaac Newton. So we've got a whole series of ways in which people are saying, all right, well, we can go out and manipulate the world and observe it and do different things with it, and that actually is a reasonable foundation for us to understand how things work. So if you are an empiricist in the British empirical sense, then you have no problem with the idea of experimental science because experimental science clearly tells you things about the world because it's just a refined form of perception. You're just seeing things under controlled conditions. And so you say, oh, of course, obviously that's knowledge. What's more doubtful if you are an empiricist is knowledge of things that can't be directly experimented on, things that can't actually be directly touched. And this is something that David Hume, coming along a little bit later, will end up really pushing a bit further than, than even someone like Locke does that you may know things about physical objects, but 
there are limits to what you can know about things that you couldn't touch, things you can't perceive. Now, why is this a particular problem? And it's sort of a problem in terms of you can know things about the external qualities of objects, but you can't know anything about their internal disposition. But there's some ways that you might be able to deal with that. But there are two biggies that you can't know anything about if you're a strict empiricist. One of them is the very existence of the self. As Hume points out, every time I look for myself, I don't find myself. Instead, what I find is I find a body that has already moved, or I find a reflection in the mirror or something like that. I don't see me. I never see myself. And it's like, okay, so this sort of sounds like just kind of a you know, strange delusion that you have after you've like smoked too much opium or whatever, but um, this is a really important issue because the self in this tradition is still kind of code for the immortal soul. And if you can't see yourself and you don't know that yourself exists, then you don't know that you have a soul. And if you don't know that you have a soul, you might be going to hell when you die for permanent torture. So that's a problem, and you really need to be able to validate these things. And if you can't see the self, well, that's a big hole someplace. There's another problem that Hume points out, that if you are a strict empiricist, you actually can't know anything about causality. Because all you know is you know that things seem to succeed each other in certain kinds of patterns, but you have absolutely no idea why. So I see the sun come up in the morning, and it goes down tomorrow. And I see the sun go up, and it goes down, and I have no way of knowing whether the sun's going to come up tomorrow or the next day or the next day because all I know is what has happened in the past, and I have no valid basis on which to extrapolate that. So for Hume, this becomes the problem of induction, knowing things about particulars, knowing things about perceivable objects only tells you what has happened and does not give you any reliable basis. Again absolutely certain basis. We're still in Descartes world here. They're still looking for absolute certainty. Um, no absolutely certain basis on which to go. So what Hume falls back on is, well, we have sort of an instinct. Humans have an instinct to, uh, to extrapolate patterns and to work with them in the world. And then if you sort of scratch on that instinct, where did that come from? Guess what? It's God again. So you end up with God having given humans the capacity to actually reason in this way. So once again, the attempt to escape a theological grounding for knowledge still ends up with a little bit of theology floating around at the back. So another version of how to try to resolve these Cartesian anxiety issues comes on the sort of polar opposite side of the Enlightenment. So we have the British empiricists doing their thing, um, and then I figured it wasn't worth putting up a picture of Kant because Kant wouldn't like a picture of himself up there because it would be far too empirical, and we have to be purely rationalist about these things. So the solution that uh, this alternative branch of the Enlightenment comes up with is to not ground knowledge on sense perception, but instead to ground knowledge on the basic operations of reason reason itself. So we know things not because we perceive stuff and deduce upward from that, but we know things because reason has innate categories that present the world to us in a particular way. And once we know what those categories are, then we're able to sort of use empirical evidence to fill in the details. So instead of plugging into the world at this bottom level of sense perception, you plug into the world at this top level of rational categories that make the world perceivable to us. So this is Kant's argument about how we know things. In a sense, we know things because rational beings present the world to themselves in rational ways. 
And those categories make possible the subsequent sets of perceptions that we have. And you can't doubt those categories because they are, of course, given to you by pure reason, asterisk, pure reason, definitely not God, definitely not divine, definitely just reason and not religious at all the way Kant would sort of express it. Now, I'm extrapolating here because Kant never actually said it quite that explicitly, but basically what he means. This is an attempt to get around the problem of revelation. So instead of having revelation do it, you have pure reason. And then people say, well, gosh, Immanuel Kant, what exactly is pure reason? And Kant says, funny you should ask. I have this whole critique of pure reason, and it's about that long, and you can go ahead and read that. And then, you didn't like that one as much? I'm going to write a B version of that, so there's a second version of that book, and you can look at that one too. And there were a few little loose ends in there, so I'm going to write two more critiques after that, so I'm going to have the critique of practical reason and the critique of judgment that's really going to wrap this whole thing up. I'm going to prove to you, over the course of my philosophical career, Kant basically argues, that from pure reason, we can get all the things that Descartes thought were completely indubitable, like the existence of the autonomous knowing subject, but we can also get all the things that the empiricists thought were important, like observation. We can get all these things and wrap them up in one big rational package, and that will be our absolutely secure foundation, and no more Cartesian anxiety shows up. Kant's word for this style of reasoning is a priori, which is to say before experience, the word a priori gets radically misunderstood and misused by people who don't sort of put it back in its original Kantian context. An a priori notion is not simply any theoretical notion. It is a notion that one holds to be true without having to observe anything in order to validate its truth. Something that is true simply in virtue of how one thinks about it. Those are a priori notions. They're supposed to be just from pure reason alone. So Kant argues that notions like space and time are not empirical observations, but they are rational categories through which we make sense of things in the world. If I look out into the world, I see objects. I don't see space that the objects are suspended in. But the logical idea of space is necessary for me to make sense of how these objects are arranged with relation to each other. Where did the notion of space come from? Well, it didn't come from me observing anything, according to Kant. It comes from pure reason. Pure reason creates that category, gives me that category, and now I'm able to perceive that objects are arranged in space. So spatiality and temporality are these basic categories that, in a sense, we bring to the world and we reasonable creatures bring them to the world, not just we particularly socialized human beings, but we reasonable creatures. Kant is very careful to argue that these categories that he's talking about are characteristic of any rational creature, including rational dolphins. There's one moment where he actually makes some allusion to, to thinking fish, which people will usually uh, interpret as dolphins. Um, there's actually an entire book once written about this uh, called Kant and the Extraterrestrials, which argues that, in fact, if you look at Kant's, some of the veiled allusions in Kant's writing, he's suggesting, based on kind of speculative fiction that's floating around at this era, that if there were to be non-human rational creatures on other planets, which the author argues that there was a standard kind of shtick in the Enlightenment, that uh, God, having been a rational being, would not simply have created all life just on Earth, and there must be other inhabited worlds out there someplace. Kant says, yeah, you know what? These are pure reasons. So any rational creature would have to be using these same kinds of categories. So this is big stuff, right? This is supposed to happen for all rational beings. This from a guy who 
reportedly, never journeyed more than 30 miles from the house in which he was born in Königsberg in Prussia. So how convenient that he was born at the height of human civilization with the ability to see absolutely everything. Um, you know, the only person who sort of thinks he can see further than that is Hegel, who then comes after him and is like, I found the end of all of human history. Battle of Jena, 1806, man, that's it. History's over. Um, so these notions that you can use pure reason to sort of find the ultimate grounding of these things seems to have been a particular characteristic of German metaphysicians. Um, but that's, this is the idea of sort of how you can ground these things. I throw a causation up there as well. Uh, not, and if there's any Kant scholars in the audience, then they'll probably immediately think, but wait a minute, Kant doesn't actually think that causation is one of the original categories. No, it's not one of the original categories. But it's still an a priori notion in Kant because you cannot reason your way, you cannot observe your way to causality. Instead, you observe these Humean constant conjunctions, and then you infer causation from that because you have the notion of causation already to bring with you. Causation is not an original part of that. It's actually derived from things about space and time. There's a whole complicated section in the Critique of Pure Reason that does this. But it's still a notion that sort of comes before experience. So trying to ground things on uh, these reasonable procedures, on these, re on these rationations, as it were, still allows you to make some sense out of experimental natural science. Because you say what goes on in experimental natural science is it reveals these sets of laws, but then the job of the philosopher is to come along and formalize those things and draw out their implications by being clear-minded about these a priori categories. So the philosopher completes natural science. The philosopher completes science by going from the purely empirical results of experiments to the transcendent categories and laws that make sense of that experience. So there's a continuity here between experimental science and philosophy. Um, and Kant thinks that is going to solve the problem. That's going to get us out of this set of Cartesian anxieties. It is also a way of critiquing a strict reliance on empirical observation as the source of truth for being relativist. The idea being that if you only know things based on what you can see and perceive, different people could see and perceive different things, and you might end up with different conclusions. And that, of course, would be horrible, because people might think that different things were morally correct, and that would really drive us back into the Cartesian anxiety problem. So we can't do that. Right? We have to have some sort of absolute categorical proclamation of what truth is. Now, the problem with all of this <coughs> is that it only works if you agree that Kant's analysis of reason is genuinely transcendental and that Kant has genuinely elucidated categories that are essential to rational thought as such and not simply characteristics of, say, the habits of mind of certain well-educated elite Europeans in the 18th century sitting on top of colonial hierarchies and uh, being able to uh, have a life of leisure sufficient to allow them to sit around and think questions like, what exactly is the nature of pure reason? Um, if you think that there is anything culturally relative about Kant's categories, the whole edifice collapses. Because as soon as those categories become not absolute and fixed, you're tossed back into the Cartesian anxiety problem then the things that I thought of as being absolutely secure bases turn out to be an accident of where I was born, how I was raised, and how my society is organized. So then, all of a sudden, Cartesian anxiety looms once again. 
And essentially, as soon as Kant finishes doing what he does, uh, the various inheritors of Kant fall to debating exactly how much the categories that Kant had in mind and the things that he analyzed were actually only limited categories that were contingent rather than absolutely necessary. So immediately, people start trying to resolve the tensions in the Kantian project, and you have various schools of neo-Kantianism that grow up all over the place. Similar to Descartes, what's important about Kant is not his success. What's important about Kant is his failure. Because they frame the problem in a particular way, and then they set up a set of challenges that everybody's going to try to resolve after this. Hegel and all of Hegel's followers, including the deviant Hegelian followers who become Marxists, are trying to resolve this problem. They're trying to say, where are the absolute categories that we can bring to things? Hegel says, ah, absolute categories actually reveal themselves empirically because that's the way history works philosophically, and so that's what we're going to go and analyze. And Marx says, yes, exactly, except it's labor and not actually the movement of thought. So then that becomes our absolute basis, right? They're all still trying to resolve this Cartesian problem by finding that absolute basis to avoid Cartesian anxiety. Why is this relevant to us? It's relevant to us because of the inheritance that we derive from these things. So the problem of knowledge throughout the European Enlightenment shows up as something that is sort of subdivided, right? Subdivided into the rationalist and empiricist solutions that people are trying. Now, what's interesting about the rationalist and empiricist solutions, if the empiricist solution says we should be looking at things empirically and experimentally and finding basis that way, and the rationalist solution says, no, 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 think more about things, and that's how we should do it, within that very distinction, within each of those camps that are produced by that distinction, you see a kind of repetition of the same movement. So you end up within the rationalist camp between, like, the hyper-rationalist, Descartes, empirical stuff has no relevance whatsoever and I'm just going to think about things. And then within the empiricist camp, you have like the super empiricist lock. There are no innate ideas. Everything is based simply on perception. But you also have these kind of mixed positions. So you have someone like Hume saying, right, okay, empirical perception, but we also do have to think about these things a little bit, which is how we start noticing that notions like causality are, have to have been implanted in us in order for us to make sense of our daily experience. And someone like Kant, even though he is kind of the arch-rationalist, still thinks that like, you don't understand notions of spatiality until you perceive things. It's just that it's not a deduction from your perception. It's a presupposition of your perception. So these mixes of rationalist and empiricist that you get kind of in the middle here is, in effect, the debate that we then have that forms the contours of the discussion of science. That is kind of the inheritance from Enlightenment philosophy, trying to resolve that rationalist-empiricist tension, which ultimately goes back to the way Descartes formulated the problem in the first place. So this is the kind of the ground on which these debates are then carried out. You can see them throughout these various schools of neo-Kantianism going on through the 19th century. There's one more particular inflection, though, that this story takes to get us up to the contemporary period, and that is a particular inflection that takes a little detour through Vienna, and it has to take a little detour through Vienna because Vienna is the place where this group of philosophers who constituted themselves as the Vienna Circle invented something called logical positivism as a way of trying to resolve these tensions. And logical positivism is the direct ancestor of what currently passes for quote-unquote science 
in the Anglophone social sciences today. Not that we are all positivists, but we all have this huge positivist legacy. Um, there are no practicing actual positivists anymore. There are neo-positivists, and it's an important distinction that I will mention in near the end of the talk here. But in order for us to understand how positivism fits into this picture, and Vienna Circle positivism in particular, as an attempt to resolve that very tension of empiricism and rationalism, it is necessary for us to talk about my friend Ludwig Wittgenstein. And it is important to talk about Wittgenstein both because this is a setup, because I'm going to talk about Wittgenstein today, and then he's going to come back a little bit later on as a critique of positivism. Um, but uh, so it's important to sort of seed him to begin with. The other reason it's important to talk about Wittgenstein is because the folks in Vienna who were trying to solve these sorts of problems were tremendously influenced by what they understood of Wittgenstein's first book. And parenthetically, the only book he ever published during his lifetime, which was also his dissertation. If you want career advice, don't do what Wittgenstein did. Um, he actually only had two other publications to his name during his lifetime. One of them was a book review. Um, so yeah, um, you know, one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century and most of what we know about him comes from lecture notes that people took while he lectured and from uh, his Naklas, a whole series of notebooks and things that he left after he died that then his students went through and edited and pulled various pieces out of. So very, very interesting guy. Very important because, yes? <laughs> very interesting, very important guy uh, who ends up setting the foundation for a lot of the sort of next wave of, uh, of, of the resolution of these Cartesian problems. So one of Wittgenstein's central claims is that the only, and this is in the Tractatus, this is in his early work, that the only kind of valid knowledge that we have comes from empirical science. So he sounds at this point very much like an empiricist. Um, and the idea here is that we only know things for certain if we've got scientific evidence, natural scientific evidence that sort of supports them. However, unlike most empiricists who thought you could just look at things and then deduce directly from them, Wittgenstein said there's an important corrective function that philosophy and philosophical logic plays when it comes to thinking about truth, which is philosophy and logic then are tools and techniques for separating out valid statements from metaphysical nonsense. So demarcating truth from metaphysics becomes the task of philosophy here. Not doing what Kant thought, which is completing the project of science, but bounding the project of science and saying, here it is, wrapped up, those are the things we can say, that's stuff we can know about. All these other kinds of statements that are about things that are not observable, those are nonsense. And so we should just basically get rid of all that stuff. So we get rid of the nonsense, and what we're left with is sets of empirical truth. So the way Wittgenstein phrased this in the beginning of the Tractatus, his first book, uh, the world is the totality of facts, not of things. When we refer to objects, we are not talking just about empirical sense perceptions of objects. We are talking about those things of which you can make sensible empirical statements. And other things, like God, that you can't make sensible empirical statements of, is just metaphysical nonsense and we should not even worry about it because there's no way you can actually make valid claims about these things. So the idea for Wittgenstein is you can limit knowledge to those things of which you can be absolutely secure, which are empirical scientific findings. And if you just do that, 
then you've disciplined your mind to only dwell in the realm of certainty. And if you're only dwelling in the realm of certainty, you no longer have any Cartesian anxiety because it just kind of dissolves. All the other sort of thoughts that come into your head, well, those are just idle fancies. You don't have to worry about those things. Don't, don't worry about that. Just go back and do more science. You'll be fine. Um, don't worry about aesthetics because those are just nonsense statements too. Don't worry about, about philosophy, the, the traditional problems of philosophy and being and theology. Like, no, 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 all that stuff is just language issues. Like, don't, don't worry about that stuff. Now, what's fascinating about Wittgenstein, though, is that's the way he was read. What I just gave you is kind of the way he was read by the, by the Vienna Circle logical positivists. As if Wittgenstein is saying, don't talk about nonsense, only talk about the things that are sensible. Paul Engelman, who was a collaborator of Wittgenstein's and actually an architect who worked with him on this house, which I'm going to show you some pictures of in a minute, um, once suggested that the key to understanding Wittgenstein is that Wittgenstein was very concerned to map the continent of reason. And everybody thought that was because, or initially people thought that was because what Wittgenstein was interested in was what lived on the continent of reason. That that's what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to focus yourself on that. Engelman suggested that that's actually wrong that what Wittgenstein was really interested in was not the continent of reason, but the ocean. So limiting rational thought, saying only statements that are natural scientific statements can be true, is actually, if you take that kind of reading of Wittgenstein, really about showing you what else exists in the world. And instead of saying, this is certainty on which we can ground all knowledge, saying, this is certainty, and it's amazing how small it is. Because the rest of the world is something that we still live in, and it can't actually be reduced to these kinds of natural scientific procedures. People did not understand Wittgenstein this way at first, and so the logical positivists in the Vienna Circle took Wittgenstein to be articulating a positive program of the delimitation of thought. That we should be empiricist in saying only empirical knowledge matters, and we should be rationalist in saying what we do is clean up our language so that our language is through and through just the language of natural science and physical science. And then we've been able to eliminate, we would be able then to eliminate um, the ways in which, uh, in which we delude ourselves by getting into these sort of traps of speaking. That this would be the proper way of grounding our knowledge. We would do this primarily by getting rid of metaphysical notions. And yes, God is a metaphysical notion, but if you look at the actual writing of the Vienna Circle, it is not accidental that the Vienna Circle folks were all democratic socialists, many of them were Jewish, and this was Vienna in the 1920s and 1930s. So when they write things about criticizing the spirit of das Volk, it is very clear what they are actually referring to politically by making these sets of claims that appear to be technical philosophical claims but have huge amounts of political resonance. They're arguing that these sorts of mystical notions that they see going on around them and animating this horrible politics that they see, like that's based on nonsense. And so we should get rid of the nonsense, and if we get rid of that, then we're going to be in a much better place. It is not an accident that members of the Vienna Circle were popular speakers at the Bauhaus in Berlin. They were connected to the same kind of transformative architectural improvement idea that you could like redesign human life so as to eliminate these metaphysical errors. Right? So there's this whole project that they're connected to. And metaphysics, 
for them is the source of error. So we get rid of these various sorts of notions, and then we're going to be in a much better kind of place. There is no such thing as ethical knowledge if you are a strict positivist. There is no such thing as aesthetic knowledge. There really is no such thing as poetry. Uh, there's just fact, and that's what we should really be interested in. Nothing unobservable can possibly be real, so when we say things like the onward march of the people through history and our destiny is going to actually lead us on to greatness, that becomes a nonsense statement. And so we should dismiss it because it is not a verifiable claim at all. So Wittgenstein, as I said before, is sort of trying to delimit this and say there are things that are, that are the realm of natural science and the realm of truth, and those are, are their own kind of certainty, but there is all this other stuff. The positivist is saying that other stuff is irrelevant and we should get rid of it. We should only focus on the sorts of things that we could say. So trying to discipline their language and clean up language is kind of the, the whole logical positivist project. So the photo that I have here is a photo of the corner of the Wittgenstein house in Vienna. Uh, this is a house that he built actually for his sister, Marguerite. And when he built this, it took about two years of co-designing it with Paul Engelman. Um, this is after, because after the Tractatus, he thought he'd solved all the problems of philosophy, so he stopped being a philosopher for a while, and then he was a school teacher. Well, before that, he went and built a cabin by himself up in Norway, and he lived there for a while. Like, he literally built the cabin by himself. Um, and then he decided to be an architect for a couple of years, and so then he goes back and he sort of builds this house. And what's fascinating is if you go to this house and you take a look at it in contrast to the kind of architecture that's floating around in Vienna at the time, right, you can see the contrast here, right? So behind there, you've got a typical 19th century Vienna, Vienna building where you've got these little gestures and these little sort of architectural details and so on. And opposed to this, Wittgenstein's house is very, very spare, very strict, <laughs> right? So it's very kind of logically cleaned up. And so what a logical positivist would say when looking at the Wittgenstein house is, oh, he's produced an absolutely empirically grounded house, right? He's produced something that's, that, that's completely pure and devoid of metaphysics because look at that Viennese house in the background. That's all metaphysical nonsense. Look at all that little aesthetic design crap. Like, no, 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 no. We're going to have something absolutely pure. Right? So this is kind of the positivist reading of how this house works. It's blocky, right? It's, it, it, it's, it doesn't have, like, if you look at the last, look at the little balcony thing on the top, it's a fairly typical thing for Viennese architecture. And Wittgenstein's like, yeah, none of that. We're just going to go straight right there. Um, but what's fascinating about the house, and this I think is sort of the key to understanding how Wittgenstein is much more complicated than the logical positivist made him out to be, the key to the house is he built it for his sister, and his sister loved it, and almost everybody else hated it. So he understood his sister's aesthetic sensibility well enough to be able to produce like the idealized form of her aesthetic. And she was like, yeah, this is a great place. Look, her son hated it, which is why then her son eventually sells the house, and it's about to be demolished when a, an international campaign of philosophers resulted in it being saved by put on the Vienna Register of Historical Places. Um, and then it gets bought by, of all people, the Bulgarians, and then the Bulgarian embassy uses it as a cultural, cultural attaché headquarters. Um, before it had gotten designated a historic place, they had torn down a couple of walls, and they had repainted part of it. Um, there is a part of the house that they have been mandated to restore to its original state so you can actually see what the real wall color actually was after they, you scrape off the kind of paint that they dashed up over it. Um, 
But the thing that's important about the house is that it, it not only does it pick up sort of Marguerite's aesthetics, if you look at the fine details of the house, the fine details of the house, in a way, pick up the essence of Viennese architecture without all of the Rococo gestures and, and scroll work and all of these sorts of things. There's a kind of austere majesty to the house. And Wittgenstein is very deliberate when he designs these doors, which are also windows. So it's like, are you inside the house? Or are you outside the house? You can open the door a little bit, and then it's sort of a window. You open it further, and then it's a door, and you can actually pass through it. Um, it's all these double-paned glass, and there's sort of these weird ways in which the house repeats itself in, the, in angles and so on and so forth. Why do I spend time on this, besides the fact that it's just really cool to show pictures of the Wittgenstein house? Uh, because the architecture that Wittgenstein had in mind, and not just the architecture of the house, but the architecture of his whole way of thinking, was precisely that even though you could rationally delimit knowledge and say, here's where absolute certainty is, there are ambiguities in the delimitation. Right? So you can say there's a region of absolute certainty, but trying to find the boundaries of where that region actually is is really, really difficult. So what Wittgenstein ends up leaving us with, and this is something that the logical positivists did figure out, was, yes, this is the demarcation, but we don't have a good demarcation principle. We, Wittgenstein has taught us that we can get to the sort of promised land of pure certainty if we can figure out the difference between sense and nonsense as I will argue a little bit later on this week, Wittgenstein himself never actually thought you could finish that project, um, but he wants to sort of move down that direction as far as possible in a way to show you that it's impossible. You can read the house as being, if we were gonna build a perfectly logical house, this is what it would look like, and gosh, look at all the lingering ambiguities in the purely logical house. Look at the ways in which the house can't actually fulfill its own function. So it becomes a kind of performance of a, of a contradiction, uh, to use a completely anachronistic term that Wittgenstein would also have hated because he would only have wanted to use the word contradiction for something that was done strictly in formal logic. Um, regardless, this demarcation problem, right, this problem of delimiting science is the legacy that you get from this reading of early Wittgenstein through the Vienna Circle, that it is important for us to find the difference between science and non-science. Because what's at stake in the distinction between science and non-science is exactly the solution of the Cartesian anxiety problem. If I can figure out where the realm of sensibility is, if I can figure out where truth resides and how to delimit sense from nonsense, then I can avoid worrying about the basis on which my knowledge is placed because now I will have absolute certainty once again. So the Vienna Circle version of this was to say that the unverifiable metaphysical statements are simply nonsense and they are particularly nonsense because they have no observable implications. So the historic destiny of our race or the will of divine, in, the will of, the, of, of the, the providential divine power, right? They don't mean anything because they don't have any observable implications and they are compatible with any observable implication that you could possibly see. If everything is the will of God, then everything is the will of God. End of conversation. Unless God somehow has a very specific set of things that God wills, and then you can verify that by looking to see whether those things that God wills actually come about, but then this would lead you into a weird paradox because you didn't have to sort of know what God willed before you actually saw what happened. 
and where would you end up getting knowledge of what God actually wills? Um, particularly since if you go to look at the scriptural traditions about this, then God seems to will some weird stuff. And so it's like, what's going on here? How do you actually get down to the bottom of this? So instead, they, instead of trying to confront that particular problem, they just say, no, no, we're going to wrap all this stuff up in the unobservable metaphysical nonsense category and kind of get rid of it. Um, it's like if you say, this is beautiful. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, how would we have an observable implication for a particular definition of beauty? Huh, maybe it's better we just don't go into that, so we just sort of wrap up aesthetics and sort of push it off into the realm of nonsense. That's the way that the logical positivists would try to deal with these things. You would need empirical evidence to try to demonstrate that a particular statement was true, and if there was no possible empirical evidence that would demonstrate that the statement is true, then you simply get rid of the statement. You prune your language, you try to discipline your thinking. The way you would do this for a logical positivist is you have to analyze every statement down to its truth conditions and figure out what would possibly make it true. What kind of evidence could we adduce that would possibly make a statement true like this? This is again modeled on the question of the natural sciences. If objects fall to the ground when dropped and they accelerate at a particular constant rate, well, that's something we can verify by dropping objects and seeing if they, in fact, fall. There's, a, there's, a, there's an idolization of the sort of idealized Galilean experiment of dropping things off the tower in Pisa. Um, and uh, regardless of whether that actually happened, the idea is this is what we would need to do, these kinds of experimental procedures. And if you can't do that, well, you know, just get rid of it and you'll live a happier life by not having to worry about these things. It is important to note, because people often misunderstand this, that there is absolutely no incompatibility between this kind of strict logical positivism and the idea that statements can be probabilistic. Because a probabilistic statement, this is 75% likely, is just as definite a statement as this is 100% likely. It's not definite in terms of the outcome, but definite in terms of the confidence you have in it. If I say this is very likely to happen and I can give you a precise number of it, sure, I can be absolutely certain that this is 75% likely. Right? It's that absolute certainty is the kind of thing that they're still aiming at here. The project as I said, is to definitively bound natural science and figure out where the limits of science actually are. So the inheritance, in a way, of the Vienna Circle and logical positivism is this demarcation problem. And I'm going to stop here because we're out of time, and tomorrow I'm going to talk a little bit about the last piece of this puzzle, which is this guy named Karl Popper who you may have heard of, who was a postdoc floating around at the Vienna Circle meetings. Um, he would go to the cafes where they would be talking, and he would say, well, I had this idea, not about verification, but about falsification. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, Carl, yeah, yeah, hang on, hang on. We're, we're, we're busy trying to figure out uh, how, we would, how we would properly scientifically describe the curl of the smoke from Neuroth's cigar. That's our big concern right now. Um, you, you, we'll come back to you a little bit later. So eventually, Popper self-proclaimed becomes the person who kills logical positivism by introducing this notion of falsification. And we'll pick the story up there tomorrow morning. <laughs>